This is Kate Moorhead Carroll in the podcast, Find It. Today I want to focus on an incredibly important topic in our culture today, and that is addiction. With me is John Roberts, a recovering alcoholic who has become a professional interventionist and a sponsor and grand sponsor of people in recovery. I have known John for many years and admired him. Here's my conversation with him from the sanctuary of St. John's Cathedral. John Roberts, thank you for being with us. Um, I am so grateful for you myself, um, having known you now for, wow, uh, over a decade. We've prayed together. I have referred people to you. Uh, You have prayed for me and my family, and um, I'm very grateful for you and for your story. And thank you for being with us this morning. Um, John, if we could begin, and um, if you speak slowly and hold the mic close to your mouth, would you tell us just a little bit about your life and who you are? Thank you, Ed. It's a real honor for me to be here for all kinds of reasons, some of which I'll explain as we go along. But... uh, my name is John Roberts, as Kate mentioned, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. My sobriety date, the day that I quit drinking, is April 25th of 1980. So it's been 43 years since I've had a drink of alcohol. Uh, I call myself recovering rather than recovered. Um, because I need to be reminded that recovery for me is a day-to-day thing. Um, I feel like I've been given uh, a daily reprieve, and that reprieve is conditioned on, on kind of where I am spiritually and the degree to which I can be mindful of the needs of other people who are new in recovery and could use a a helping hand. And so I'm recovering rather than recovered. I became uh, an alcoholic just, it was easy. (laughs) That is the problem, isn't it? (laughs) It was so easy to become an alcoholic. I had no intention, of course, of that happening. Um, It began with a conversation, oddly enough, that I had with my doctor. And I was was a young man in my uh, mid-twenties, and I was newly married, and I had a new place to live, and I had just gotten a big promotion at work, and lots of things going on, lots of stress. And my doctor says, you know, you're too young for me to put you on, on tranquilizers or things like that. He says, what you need to do, John, is you need to stop in the middle of the day uh, at a place to get lunch where they serve whiskey. And he says, John, have a couple of whiskeys with your sandwich. Wow. Yeah. And he said, that'll take the edge off. And, you know, we were both sitting there in his office and we each had a lit cigarette in our hand. I mean, this, <laughs> I mean, this was 50 years ago. I mean, things have changed. 
But I, I took him at his word, and I went to a, a bar that is located where Friendship Fountain is now located across the river, and the bar was called Someplace Else. And it was where all the up-and-coming business executives, you know, the 20 and 30-somethings, um, the yuppies, where we all went to have our three martini lunches. And that's what I commenced to do. And I fell in love with alcohol. I loved how it made me feel. It just changed how I saw myself. It changed how I saw people. I became a great conversationalist. Um, there were times when we would break out in song at someplace else. It was kind of like a ad hoc karaoke, and I was really a good singer when I had a couple of martinis in me, and I could tell jokes, and people would laugh. I could tell stories, and people would pay attention. It was wonderful. It was just, and I fell in love with the stuff. And that continued on and on and on until it occurred to me that I was spending a lot of money and I didn't live too far from where I worked, and so I just uh, decided to, at lunch, go home and, and have my martinis. And by that time, I had stopped having a sandwich. I just had martinis, and I had switched to vodka because you can't smell vodka, and, and so you can drink as much vodka as you want to drink and no one can tell how much you're drinking. I mean, the stuff you believe and you come to believe to be true. Um, <clears throat> and over uh, about an eight-year period, I became totally isolated, um, drinking by myself at home with the curtains drawn and the lights out, sitting in my big reclining chair, sipping martinis, virtually all afternoon long. And then I started drinking in the morning. And uh, I, I just, I let go of almost all my friendships. Uh, the only person who was still with me was my first wife, Marcia. And she was getting totally fed up. And she, one night, said to me words that, looking back, they were very hard to hear, but she saved my life that night. And she said, John, if you don't do something about your drinking, I'm divorcing you. She said, I can't be any more clear than that. You do something or I'm out of here. And that, some, for some reason, really caught my attention. I called a friend who I knew was in recovery because he had told me he was in recovery about three years before. And that's important. Um, he told me he was in recovery, and he said, anytime you find yourself getting in trouble with your drinking, uh, just give me a call. And so I called him. And I went to see him, and he agreed to take me to a meeting that very night. And, uh, 
And that was April 25th of 1980. I went to my first AA meeting, and they offer you a white poker chip if you if you want to join. <laughs> and and when they were offering the poker chips, Jack gave me a big nudge, and I got up and I went forward and I picked up the poker chip, not having any idea what I was getting myself into and certainly not knowing, not knowing at all that that was the day a whole new life would begin. And by the grace of God, um, I have not had a drink since. Uh, the marriage did not last. Uh, there was too much damage done and too much wreckage. And uh, so about a year into my recovery, uh, we got a divorce. We also had just become communicants of St. John's Cathedral. And so I sit here this morning with this sense of having come sort of full circle uh, because I used to, when I was... Uh, when I was separated from my first wife and I was uh, feeling kind of sorry for myself, I would sit way, way in the back. But it was here where I had my first sober Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it was here where I had my first sober Thanksgiving and I ate Thanksgiving dinner, you know, with some of the congregation over in Tolliver Hall. Um, I found myself blundering into a wine and cheese tasting thing that they had in Ingram Lounge, and and uh, and I was I had no idea you know why I did that, but there was a tug on my sleeve, and this woman who was uh, married to a friend of mine who knew I was in recovery, you know, she said, "Can I get you a soda and a glass with some ice in it?" And I said, oh, that would be wonderful. And, and it was little kindnesses like that. Um, but the thing that really, really made this possible was Jack, who became my sponsor, broke his anonymity and told me three years before I called him that he was a recovering alcoholic. If he hadn't told me that, I would not have known to call him. And I think my life would have taken a very different course. Mm. And in a sense, that's why I'm here this morning, is that I want to step out from behind the veil of anonymity and let you know that recovery is possible, that the word most often associated with alcohol, alcoholism is hopeless. That there, you know, that an alcoholic is, is hopeless. And it many times gives that impression that this person is beyond all help. And I'm here to tell you that that is not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. That I sponsor many men who have 20, 30 years of continuous sobriety. This town is filled with people who are in recovery and long-term recovery, and they want to help. 
and there are probably very few people here this morning and very few people watching on uh, our YouTube channel whose lives have not in some way been touched by alcoholism. I mean, virtually everybody knows somebody. And it can be a family member, it can be a close friend, it can be someone you know at work. Um, we all seem to have a drunk in our life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, you know the, the, the uncle that shows up on Thanksgiving, you know, and starts a food fight and all that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and I just, I just think it's important that you all know that there is a world of help out there. Uh, in the greater Jacksonville area, there are over 700 AA meetings every single week. Wow, wow, John. Uh, there are not quite as many, but there are probably uh, 50 to 75 Narcotics Anonymous meetings. There are meetings for Al-Anon, um, uh, family members who have an uh, alcoholic in their life, and for Naranon, uh, for people who have drug addicts in their life. And uh, so there is, there is lots of help. Well, John, let's talk about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. We have um, a lot of help. We also have a lot of addiction in our culture, and yes. it seems to be worsening. Um, when you talked about your story, you talked about this increasing isolation, and we see um, that isolation is related to addiction, isn't it? It is. Um, tell us more about the yeah. relationship between isolation and addiction. Right. It is a vicious circle. Um, I became very isolated, uh, and so I know what that feels like and what it looks like. And I have seen other people who are um, alcoholic, who are isolated as well. And um, in fact, I think one of the true markers for alcoholism is isolation, is just the complete pulling away from friends, from family, from colleagues at work. Um, and I think what drives a lot of it, quite frankly, is shame and guilt. And it is a kind of a cycle of shame and guilt that sort of feeds on itself. But we become convinced that we are pariahs and have no place in polite company and society. And, and so we go and we hide and uh, conceal how much we drink. We hide our bottles. I wrapped all my dead bottles in, in newspaper so they wouldn't rattle as I took them out, you know, to the curb. I mean, it, you know, I, everything was a secret. Um, it, it was just awful. And, and yet the road to recovery is the opposite. It's the opposite of that because you find yourself, I found myself in rooms filled with recovering alcoholics who were, some of them were just as new as me, and some had been around for a long, long time. But it was a room filled with recovering alcoholics. And the road back to 
sobriety is made up of connections that I made with people that up until that time, I, I didn't know these people. But as I got to know them, uh, I found out that they were having the same kind of stuff going on in their lives as I was having in mine. And you know it, for us Christians, that is so um, relevant to the gospel and the way that Jesus lived because he showed us his wounds. When he yes. was resurrected, he didn't show us hair, his hairdo or his muscles. He showed us who he was right. by showing where he had been hurt. Right. And we connect to one another when we show our wounds to one another. Right. And in AA, that's kind of what you're doing. You're saying, I'm a mess. Yes. And, and actually, we're all a mess, whether we're alcoholics or not. But in a way, alcoholics, and this may sound counterintuitive, but aren't you blessed because you were forced <laughs> to admit that you're a mess? <laughs> you know, you really bring out, a, 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 there's a great, uh, there was just this paradox that I, I heard from the very beginning. And that was um, particularly amongst the old timers who had been around for a while. And they would introduce themselves as I'm so-and-so and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. And that did not make any sense to me at all. How could you put grateful and alcoholic in the, in the same sentence? And what they were grateful for is all that had happened happened in terms of connection and reconnecting uh, and finding, essentially finding their tribe. You know, there are others here who have suffered as I have suffered, and we do, we do share and show each other, you know, essentially our wounds, you know, that I'm in the same boat as you. And um, I've heard one person describe the dynamic in a AA meeting is um, it is one gigantic show and tell. Mm. You can you can you can see that there's recovery because you can see it with your own eyes, and you can hear it with your own ears, and we connect on that level of brokenness. I'm broken, you're broken, and so you know uh, we have this bond that we share one with another. Mm -hmm. And that forms the basis of lifelong connections mm -hmm. as we get better together. Mm -hmm. You know, because you don't yeah. stay a mess, you get better. Um, and therein lies the mystery of the gospel, the healing yeah. nature of God Absolutely. happens in community, doesn't yes. happen. But in our culture, our young people, um, whether it's through technology or gaming or whatever, they're getting more and more isolated. Yeah. Um, but yet you still say, and I love this, I've heard you say, you're in the business of miracles. Tell us about what we need to do to help our young people. Um, I think that, that the, the, you know, the, there's this natural inclination to pull away as people become more connected with their devices than they are with, with people. And they sit there and they scroll and scroll and scroll. Uh, and, and that, it's interesting, but there are now treatment centers for adolescents 
Uh, used to be, if you needed to go to rehab, you had to be 18 or older. Well, now they have them for people who are 14 to 17. And it's interesting that, that what they're discovering is that there is an overlap between substance uh, use, uh, 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 substance abuse, drugs and alcohol, eating disorders, gaming, you know, I mean, there's, it is all sort of, there's like a Venn diagram. It, it, there, 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 there's a relationship between all of those things. And so they try to deal with all of those things. Um, and I think that, that uh, the idea that, that whatever, whatever I'm capable of doing, I, I have to do it on my own. I don't need you, and I don't need you, and I sure as Dickens don't need God. Um, and central to recovery is discovering that power that is greater than ourselves. And some people have to start with just walking by the ocean and that is at first their power greater than themselves. Or they look at a meeting room filled with recovering alcoholics and that's a power greater than themselves. I was fortunate because I was here. Mm. I was, I almost could touch it. I, I am touching it, mm -hmm. you know. And I was so fortunate that I had a very well-defined higher power uh, who I have come to really believe loves drunks. Absolutely <laughs> loves drunks. Has a special place in his heart for alcoholics because he knows how fragile we are, um, how easily broken, and how easily we can re-break. And so he's there. And uh, he comes to me through other people and, uh, and speaks to me through other people. He spoke to me this morning during that sermon. Hmm. I, mean, that's, I mean, God speaks to me not out of a cloud, but he speaks to me through people like you. And, and it's uh, what makes possible um, my recovery. So... Being able to convey that to young people is, uh, is hard because they really feel that, you know, they're bulletproof and, and um, you can't tell them anything and you just have to, you know, be there for them as the wheels, if the wheels start to come off. Um, we, we know lots and lots of families uh, who have had problems with their kids. Kathy and I daughter who had to go off to treatment and we came within a cat's whisker of losing her. And so, um, okay, I just, do I need another one? Okay. My, my battery is fading. Who, who, would, who would guess? Well, John, tell us a little bit about, because um, you do a lot of work intervening, trying to help people 
get to a place where they're willing to be part of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about what that's like uh, to, to watch someone not be ready. Right. Um, it is so frustrating to be in a family where you have a family member like our daughter who for years uh, was not ready. She did not want to quit. And, um, and, and Kathy and I thought that, you know, I mean, Kathy, I've got 43 years. Kathy has 41 years. And so, I mean, we've been at this a long time. And so we felt, surely we can save our daughter. <laughs> and uh, no, I mean, it was, uh, we both got into Al-Anon is what we did because we, we had to work on ourselves. Eventually, she did get help, but she became willing to get help because of what she heard from someone else. We were not the ones who brought recovery to our daughter. And that is a hard thing to accept if you're a parent, because you, you want to be the one. But many times it, it doesn't work that way. But families have a great deal of influence. And uh, we have orchestrated many family-based interventions. And when the family all gets on the same page and they all are in agreement that their family member, their loved one, is in deep trouble with alcohol or drugs or both. And what they want to do is to get that family member into some kind of treatment. Uh, The family can be very powerful if they're organized and you use a, a trained interventionist Many times you can effect an intervention where you intervene into this process of addiction and the person agrees to go to treatment. And that's essentially what happened to us. That's good. Well, and John, there are many kinds of addiction, aren't there? Yes. There's not just alcoholism. Tell us about where you also see addiction lying in the lives of Americans today. Um, I'm aware that, uh, that, you know, there's addiction. Sometimes, you know, that's a word that we use so much we kind of lose. I heard someone who's professionally trained, and they chose, instead of using the word addiction, they used attachment. Oh, that's a good word. Attachment. You You become physically attached, stuck. I was stuck to alcohol. Other people become stuck to food or to not eating food. They become stuck to this image, this body image of themselves. Or they become stuck to take chances and risk and and gamble. They, they, They become stuck to the thrill of either losing big or winning big, or they become stuck to pornography. It, it, it just, it, they become stuck to things, and, and like being stuck, you, you try to shake it loose, and it won't come off. 
you're, you're stuck. And that is why in recovery we say that in order to get unstuck, you need a power greater than yourself to help you get unstuck, to kind of, you know, pull you apart. And so that's, um, and, and I don't think anybody sets out to become addicted or stuck to any of these things. You know, we, we like to go to Vegas and play the tape, you know, and, and, and it, it grows and grows. You know, what's the harm in looking at some dirty pictures? Well, it gets bigger and bigger. You know, uh, people have a lot of pain, and they take pain medication, and that just takes over. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, we back into these things. We very rarely go headlong into any of these things and say, I'm going to get addicted. <laughs> I'm, you know, it happens to us. Mm. And... Um, I was one who, one of my defense mechanisms was to declare very loudly to anyone willing to listen that I'm going to quit drinking. I promise I am going to quit drinking and I'm going to quit Monday. <laughs> and um, Monday would come. And I would say, today is the day I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. And I would discover I, I couldn't quit. And I'd be drunk by 3 o'clock that afternoon. And this story I'd like to always tell myself that, you know, I can quit any time that I want. Uh, easy peasy, you just quit. I couldn't do it. I could not leave it alone. And that is the one thing about addiction that that civilians have a hard time understanding is why in the world, if it's causing you so much trouble, why don't you just quit? Why don't you just put the bottle away? Stop buying it. And the truth of the matter is, I couldn't. I had to have it. I had to have it just like I had to have oxygen. One of the great blessings that you found in AA was community. Um, and learning to rely on, on others and on God. And I, I'm always so impressed by people in the AA movement because they, they generally are very faithful to those meetings. Mm -hmm. I wish that I could translate that to all Christians because we all struggle with addiction in our lives in some way or another or just struggle. And we all need those groups. We all need those people that we can walk with and share with and be vulnerable with. But, but people who aren't struggling with alcoholism often don't feel motivated to find that group. Whereas you had to, it was a matter of life and death. It was. But, but it's so important for all of us to find that group that we can really be honest with. Um, how much is that kind of sharing? You go to a group almost every day, John? Or? Just, just about every day I am in some way involved. I do something about my recovery every day, and many times that involves going to a meeting um, for all kinds of reasons. Not because I'm afraid that I'm, if I don't, I'm going to start drinking, but I have reasons to be at meetings because I sponsor a number of men. Mm -hmm. um, I like to meet newcomers. I like to you know, pat them on the back, you know, and encourage them, 
because people did that with me. Mm -hmm. And it just made all the difference in the world. It really did. I kept coming back because it seemed like these people wanted me to come back, mm -hmm. you know. But, yeah, Kate, you're right that, you know, I do that out of a sense of it, it's a life and death thing for me. Uh, things are not good for alcoholics who continue to drink or who fall out of recovery and relapse and continue to drink. It's jails, institutions, and death. That's kind of the what, what unravels. And so there are good reasons why I feel it's really necessary for me to remain, as we say, in the middle of the boat. In the middle of the in boat. In the middle of like the boat. Yeah. And uh, I have come to feel that way um, about my life in the church. This is like a big inverted boat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's where we get the word nave, I think. It is. You're right. And, Ooh, and, that's good. And... Uh, we need yeah, to be I'm in the boat for I'm, our our own be sake. Be right in the middle of the boat. Yes, just you know, keep coming. Right in, so you don't fall out. Mm -hmm. You don't. If you're in the middle, you won't fall out. You know that phrase in AA: "Keep coming back." It works, works if, if you, you work, work it. it. That works for a church too. Keep yeah. coming back. It works, it works if, if you, you work, work it. it. Just show up. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was at a wedding at the uh, Ortega Methodist Church. And it was a eight o'clock Saturday night wedding. Everybody was in, you know, black tie, and it, I mean, it was it was quite the social occasion. And the groom was a recovering alcoholic, and so there were a lot of us scattered mm -hmm. in the congregation. And wouldn't you know it? We said together during the the wedding ceremony the Lord's Prayer, and at the end of the Lord's Prayer. In the Ortega Methodist Church, you heard this undercurrent, keep coming back, <laughs> after the Lord's Prayer. And people were looking around, going, what was that? I love and, that. Uh, I love that. Oh, anyway, you're that's... a blessing. Yeah, thank you, John. Thank you. Can we say a prayer together? Absolutely. Almighty God, there is so much pain and so much addiction in this world. So many people who are lonely, who look for comfort in the wrong places. We thank you for John. We thank you for the recovery movement. We thank you that in finding one another and being honest about our wounds, we can find you. We ask that you would bless all those who struggle with addiction of any kind. We ask that you would help them find the help they need that they may come to love you and know you and find the road to recovery. And we ask that you would give us wisdom and insight that we may serve you and connect those people who are lost to each other and to you. This we pray in the name of Jesus, your son, who lifted up his cross so that we might follow him. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with Thank us. You. Thank you for joining me in the podcast, Find It. Remember that if you keep searching for the divine presence, you will find it. I want to invite you, if you're interested in hearing more of these podcasts, to subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button 
and you will be informed of new episodes. And before we part ways, I pray that God will bless you and hold you, give you peace. Until we meet again.